Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Questions for Corbett. And this week, the week of the 19th anniversary of the false flag terrorist attacks of 9-11-2001, we have an appropriately 9-11-themed question coming in from a listener named Leonard, who writes, In 9-11 Trillions, Follow the Money, you explained early in the episode that Larry Silverstein insisted on insuring the WTC buildings for more than double the $1.5 billion the Port Authority carried on the complex. To accommodate this much coverage, Silverstein's insurance broker had to split it among 25 companies. A $4.55 billion settlement was reached in 2007. By that time, independent entities including Professor Stephen Jones, Kevin Ryan, and architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth had published research and evidence making a highly persuasive case that the collapse of the buildings was due to preset explosives, not airplane impacts and or fires. Why would the insurers, rather than pay out such a large sum of money, not force the equivalent of discovery to maintain that the buildings should never have collapsed and the event was not or not exclusively, a terrorist act. Is it possible the insurers were promised compensation by others, possibly those associated with the conspiracy, to encourage negotiation and settlement with Silverstein? Very good question, Leonard. Thank you for asking it. Yes, the story of the insurance payment that was made on the back of the 9-11 attack uh, is an interesting one, and it does raise some of those very important questions that you're getting at here. Uh, there are people with very significant monetary interests in in questioning the official narrative of 9-11, so why did that questioning not take place? So for people who really don't know any of this backstory, specifically, Leonard is referring to my documentary 9-11 Trillions, Follow the Money, and even more specifically, he is referring to this particular passage. In 1998, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey agreed to privatize the World Trade Center, the complex of office towers in Lower Manhattan that they had owned and operated since their construction in 1973. In April 2001, an agreement was reached with a consortium of investors led by Silverstein Properties, and on July 24, 2001, Larry Silverstein, who already owned World Trade Center Building 7, signed a 99-year lease for the Twin Towers and Buildings 4 and 5. The lease was for $3.2 billion and was financed by a bridge loan from GMAC, the commercial mortgage arm of General Motors, as well as $111 million from Lloyd Goldman and Joseph Kerr, individual real estate investors. Silverstein Properties only put down $14 million of its own money. The deal was unusual in a variety of ways. Although the Port Authority carried only $1.5 billion of insurance coverage on the WTC complex, which earlier that year had been valued at $1.2 billion, Silverstein had insisted on doubling that amount, insuring the buildings for $3.55 billion. Silverstein's insurance broker struggled to put that much coverage in place and ultimately had to split it among 25 dealers. The negotiations were so involved that only temporary contracts were in place for the insurance at the time the lease was signed, and by September the contracts were still being finalized. Silverstein's group was also explicitly given the right to rebuild the structures if they were destroyed, and even to expand the amount of retail space on the site if rebuilding did take place. Within hours of the destruction of the Twin Towers on September 11th, Silverstein was on the phone to his lawyers, trying to determine if his insurance policies could construe the attacks as two separate insurable incidents rather than one. 
Silverstein spent years in the courts attempting to win $7.1 billion from his $3.55 billion insurance policy, and in 2007 walked away with $4.55 billion, the largest single insurance settlement ever. Once again, that is just a very small clip from my 9-11 Trillions Follow the, Do- Follow the Money documentary, which is available, as with all my work, 100% for free at CorbettReport.com slash 911 Trillions. I hope you will go there specifically to access the documentary, where you can find it in audio and video form for your downloading pleasure, as well as links to the BitChute version and other places where you can watch it. But perhaps most importantly, the full hyperlinked transcript where you can find all of the sources for all of those claims that I am making in the documentary right there. Uh, And I hope that if you are interested in researching this in more depth, you will go to that transcript and you will use those links uh, to find out more information. And when you do so, you'll start to discover that this entire saga of the insurance lawsuits that that proceeded from 9-11 is so much more complex than any one or two paragraph summary could possibly do justice to. It is a very lengthy, twisted, sordid story, but very, very, very long story short, yes, Silverstein was insured for $3.55 billion through temporary contracts, actually, and there was no final deal that was finalized and in place on September 11th, an important part of the story that we'll come back to later, but uh, despite being insured for $3.55 billion, Silverstein tried to go for $7.1 billion, i.e. saying that the two planes hitting the World Trade Center were two separate incidents, two separate occurrences in the insurance lingo. Uh, that would m- mean that he could file for two separate claims and get fully reimbursed on each of them. So he was going for $7.1, plus billion dollars. Uh, the final payment ended up being $4.55 billion. So he did actually end up getting more than he was insured for. But not all of that went to Silverstein and his group specifically. Uh, if you go to read that New York Times article from the 2007 settlement that I do link up in the 9-11 Trillions uh, uh, transcript, you will note that at least $870 million of that $4.55 billion went to the Port Authority, not Silverstein. Um, and perhaps more, uh, but at least $870 million. Again, there's so so many layers to this. You have to dig through all sorts of court documents to find out the, the final uh, sums of all of this. But now that sent- settlement, it took six years of lawsuits and negotiations and wrangling before it was decided in 2007. And even then, there were different other types of insurance cases and claims that were being made that carried on for years, and even up till two years ago, which we'll get into more in a bit. But those lawsuits were largely surrounding the question of which policy that those 25 carriers who were involved in insuring the WTC were actually beholden to, because there were two different policies that were being circulated, at least two. There was one that was kind of the standard form that most of the carriers had temporarily agreed to. There was a different one that was being uh, negotiated by one of the insurance companies that didn't, that particular one didn't actually have a a clause about the occurrences that would have stipulated it was only one occurrence. So then afterwards, as part of a legal strategy, the Silverstein team tried to argue that, no, see, everyone was beholden to this particular contract that we were negotiating with this particular carrier. 
It's a, it's a, as I say, it's a huge, twisted, turning story. If you are interested in that story, I would highly recommend a very detailed, very intricate, getting into the weeds sort of uh, article that was reported in uh, 2002 by Alison Frankel in the American Lawyer called Double Indemnity. But to answer your question specifically, yes, no, let's underline what Leonard is saying here. No, I, I, as you know, I did have the chance to talk to Richard Gage last week, and uh, after our recorded conversation, I did have the chance to ask him whether or not any insurance company, any lawyer, any anyone associated with any of these lawsuits ever approached the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth about any of their research that would dispute the uh, official narrative of the collapse of these buildings, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the answer is no. Yeah, these are m- among the most powerful people in the world, the the owners of Swiss Re, the reinsurer, and uh, uh, we don't know uh, what their involvement in or awareness of the explosive demolition of the towers is or was. Um, but um, you can be sure that they profited handsomely uh, as a result of the raising of rates across the board for not only terrorist insurance, but all kinds of building insurance uh, after 9-11. Uh, they, they, uh, they made out like bandits, uh, even with the payouts uh, to Silverstein. Now, I don't have the specifics on those, um, but um, this is what I have heard. Can you confirm whether or not you have ever been contacted by any of anything, anyone related to the insurance insurers uh, in regards to information about the destruction of WTC? I've not been contacted uh, by anybody from any official agency, unfortunately, at any time in the last 14 years, other than responses from NIST to letters, uh, very poor responses, as you're going to hear about tonight. Um, no. Nor have I received threats, for what it's worth. If you were contacted by an insurer to say, uh, I mean, obviously this is theoretical since the payouts are already in the past, but if you had been contacted to say, should we pay out this claim, what would your response have been? Uh, You should not pay out this claim. You are being swindled. The insurance companies are paying out uh, for the uh, false assertion on the part of the building owners and the government uh, that these buildings were uh, destroyed by virtue of the planes impacting them and the resulting jet fuel uh, started fires. Uh, When the evidence, in fact, shows otherwise, that the buildings were destroyed by incendiaries and explosives uh, set well before 9-11. Once again, that is Richard Gage of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth at AE911truth.org. And long story short, no, no one ever approached the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth or any of the other 9-11 researchers for any of the evidence that would in any way have contra- contradicted or counteracted uh, Silverstein and his claims that would have undermined his insurance claims. And perhaps no surprise there to anyone who's been studying the 9-11 story, but still interesting nonetheless for people who believe, well, these are multi-billion dollar corporations with incredibly sophisticated and large legal teams that are looking into any and every way of trying to undermine any sort of insurance claim. If you've ever tried to file any sort of insurance claim, you know that adjusters will go the extra 
extra length every time to try to make sure that they investigate every angle to make sure there's no fraud going on here, but not in this particular case, which is particularly interesting because, for example, people might remember several years ago uh, the attorney-slash-journalist Jeffrey Scott Shapiro wrote an article in which he was attempting to debunk that crazy conspiracy theorist, the 9-11 conspiracy theorist, Jesse Ventura, and he let slip an interesting little tidbit in that article where he wrote, quote, Shortly before the building collapsed, uh, WTC7 in this case, several NYPD officers and Con Edison workers told me that Larry Silverstein, the property developer of One World Financial Center, was on the phone with his insurance carrier to see if they would authorize the controlled demolition of the building, since its foundation was already unstable and expected to fall. A controlled demolition would have minimized the damage caused by the building's imminent collapse and potentially save lives. Many law enforcement personnel, firefighters, and other journalists were aware of this possible option. There was no secret. There was no conspiracy. End quote. Now, he goes on to argue, well, you see, and remember, remember, he's talking about WTC 7 here, Building 7. He's not talking about the Twin Towers. He's talking specifically about Building 7, which everyone knew was expected to fall anyway. So everyone knew Silverstein was on the phone to his insurers specifically asking his insurers if he could demolish the building, I guess, on that day as it was teetering and ready to go, according to everyone like Shapiro and other people who he says, the firefighters, everyone knew that this was a possibility that they were going to demolish the building. But then luckily it demolished itself at free fall acceleration directly into its own footprint. <laughs> well, there you go. Problem solved. I guess we don't have to worry about that controlled demolition that Silverstein was asking his insurers about on that day. But he sure can claim the insurance money on that because it just fell by itself, right? So, it, yeah, particularly odd that the insurers, who he was on the phone to, which insurers? His, his broker, I guess? But is that... Well, anyway, the, the details are scant here. And surprisingly, no one ever followed up with Jeffrey Scott Shapiro or all of the police officers and firefighters and reporters and everyone that he says no, knows about this. This is no conspiracy. Everyone knew that Silverstein was trying to get the building demolished. Really? Um... So that's a particular oddity that was, of course, never followed up on in court by any of the insurers. And here's another one. This is the same Larry Silverstein, let's keep in mind, who is openly, on the record, on video, admitted to having planned the rebuilding of World Trade Center Building 7 in April of 2000? We've got to rebuild this building. We've got to rebuild 7 World Trade Center. And we've got to do it fast. Because you've got to show the world that this part of the world is going to come back and that we're going to rebuild it. And that the firms that were here, the companies that were here, will come back. And the thousands of people leaving their apartments, they will come back. But we've got to show them a sign that this is not going to stay like this forever. We're going to rebuild. And we're going to find, get the money from the insurance companies with which to build. And so, the floor plan, as it evolved, is what you see here. It's not the same size, it's not the same shape of the original seven, but we had to make changes, and we had to do it fast. And so what you're seeing is the floor plan of a building, not of two million feet, or we could get into the same space 
because of the need to reimpose the street grid was a million seven hundred thousand square feet. So the floor sizes were no longer a football field. They were now only 42,000 feet. And the building is going to contain not two million feet, but a million seven. And that's one of the sacrifices we have to make. I said, let's make it and let's get on with it. And so, next thing you know, we've got the designs of a building. And the first design meeting was in April of 2000. And construction began shortly thereafter in 2002. All right. Now, before anyone gets too excited that this is another Silverstein smoking gun, I will say that if you go and listen to the full context of this story, and I will obviously put the link in so you can go and do so, you will discover that logically this story doesn't make any sense if he's talking about April of 2000. He must mean April of 2002, and then later that year they were starting the construction. That that seems to be what he's talking about, because he's clearly talking about redesigning in the wake of the attack in the context of that story. But at any rate, it is an interesting misstatement, question mark. And at the very least, no one has followed up on him about that misstatement, question mark. Certainly no insurance adjusters. At least the insurance companies have never raised it in their lawsuit or ever asked questions about that April 2000 reconstruction design for W2C7. Uh, so... Again, an interesting part of this puzzle um, that has not reared its head in court. But what has reared its head in court? You cannot make this stuff up. Yes, Silverstein actually tried to sue the airlines and the airline security companies that were in place in September 2001 for their negligence in letting terrorist hijackers onto the planes that then destroyed his precious buildings. Yes, that lawsuit really did happen. And it was really thrown out uh, because the judge ruled that his settlement with the insurers would have uh, covered what he would have been able to recuperate from the airlines, citing state laws barring windfalls and double recovery on the same loss. So that was thrown out. But somehow, and I don't really understand this, although that was thrown out several years ago, just two years ago, in 2017, uh, Silverstein actually ended up managing to win $95 million out of the airline companies for their negligence. So that's the latest as far as I know. And again, these stories continue to be updated. So who knows? And I'm not sure how a case that was thrown out, I guess, on appeal, an appeal of appeal. Who knows? At any rate, it got settled a couple of years ago to Silverstein's benefit of $95 million. And in fact, there is only that I can find one pushback from the insurance companies that even hints at the idea that there is a deeper truth to what happened on 9-11, but not really in the way that most 9-11 truthers would recognize as 9-11 truth. Specifically, Con Edison and several of the insurers sued Silverstein and Citigroup, and I believe there were some other uh, defendants in that lawsuit, over their negligent construction of WTC7, arguing that Quote, there was negligent design, inspection, maintenance, and operation of the diesel fuel tanks there. But, and here's the rub, rub they argue, the diesel tanks caused the building to collapse. Brock, please cue the Price is Right fail horn. Yeah, no, obviously, 
that is a false uh, trail that was attempted to be that was being attempted to be used in the court of law there by the insurers and uh, Con Edison. But yes, that was one of the five different explanations for the collapse of WT the collapse of WTC seven that was thrown out there before NIST hit on its thermal expansion myth. And so, uh, yeah, even NIST ultimately rejected that idea that it was the fuel, uh, the diesel fuel tanks that were responsible for the collapse of WTC7. So, unsurprisingly, they didn't get far with that lawsuit. Uh, specifically, it was thrown out in 2011 because, not because, even interestingly, the, I, I think the judge would have, should have, thrown it out because NIST argued, no, it's thermal expansion. It had nothing to do with the fuel oil tanks. But no, uh, the reason cited for uh, the throwing out of this case was it was not within seven WTCOs or Citigroup's range of apprehension that terrorists would slip through airport security, hijack an airplane, crash it suicidally into one of the two tallest skyscrapers in New York City, set off falling debris that would ignite a building several hundred feet away, cause structural damage to it, destroy water mains causing an internal sprinkler system to become inoperable, kill 343 firemen and paralyze the rest so that a fire within a building would not be put out and the building would be allowed to burn an entire day before it consumed itself and collapsed. So there you go. There was the chance to sign, seal, and deliver a nice court judgment that included basically the official story of the collapse. The collapse, once again, interesting word, of WTC7. Uh, Con Edison and the others did appeal that decision, but they uh, lost again in 2013. So, so no, there was no attempt, really serious attempt, by the insurers to ever question the official story of 9-11. So, brings us right back to Leonard's question. Are they in on the plot? Are they co-conspirators? Were they given monetary compensation in other forms, in other ways, in secret backroom deals because they were the ones that were put on the hook for this? Uh, it's a good question, and I don't have a definitive answer for that because I don't know the inner back workings of the plot with regards to the insurance companies and who may have been doing what. It would be a research project that I will put out there for intrepid enterprising young reporters in the audience to get working on looking into the connections of the insurance executives who were in charge specific, well, of all of the different carriers that were signed on to that deal. But specifically, you'd probably want to start with Swiss Re, which was responsible for the majority, well, not the majority, but 22% of the share of the insurance coverage of WTC, the Twin Towers when they went down. So uh, that would be a place to start, look into the executives who were in charge at that time and their connections. I'm sure there will be some interesting things to be found, but will there be any smoking gun evidence? I, I can't say. But the, these are publicly traded companies for the most part. I mean, Swiss Re, for example, is a publicly traded company. So if I was, say, a shareholder in Swiss Re, I would be holding the board's feet to the fire. Why didn't you bring up this evidence that there was something else happening here? Why didn't you bring up the idea that perhaps Silverstein had something to do with this and he were paying him? No, 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 no. That's not how insurance works. Why wouldn't the majority shareholders do that? Oh, wait, that's right. Because as of the 31st of December, 2018, at any rate, there was one shareholder in Swiss Re with a participation exceeding the 3% threshold of their share capital. And that shareholder, any guesses? Yeah, BlackRock. BlackRock Inc. And I'm sure I don't need to elaborate for some of you, but if you do, please do look into BlackRock and their connections to, well, everything that's unfolding right now. 
Um, but yeah, that is a pretty good indication that no, the shareholders of Swiss Re are not particularly concerned about finding the truth of 9-11. So yeah, so there's a lot to say here and a lot of things to unpack, but let's 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 take a look at it from a slightly different perspective. Here's here's one interesting way of looking at this. So the insurance deal, as I say, this was a massive insurance deal that was going down and being negotiated even up to and then even after the point of the actual signing of the lease, which is kind of crazy in and of itself. But yes, in August, continuing into September, they did not have finalized contracts for the insurance in place. Negotiations were still ongoing. They were still only temporary contracts being uh, used and still being drafted in some cases. So uh, that's, again, why they uh, tried to, in court, argue, no, we can go with this one document that we were negotiating with this company for all of the companies. And that's what led to years of legal negotiations and, and wrangling back and forth. And ultimately, uh, Larry Silverstein did not, lucky Larry, did not get the $7.1 billion he was gunning for. He did not get the extra $3.5 billion that he was gunning for from the airlines. So he lost out to the tune of several billion dollars of what he could have... Uh, gained if he had had his all his ducks lined up and in the right way at the right time instead of being in the midst of this chaotic negotiation that was ongoing even as the Twin Towers lease had been signed and he was securitizing and issuing bonds on on that deal and again that's pretty crazy now I wouldn't exactly cry any tears for Lucky Larry because as Forbes reports today Silverstein's stake in the building this One World Trade the new uh, World Trade Center Tower uh, that was constructed on the ashes of the old is currently fully leased and is anchored by Moody's Corporation his, and it is his most valuable asset by Forbes' estimates. So yeah, in the end, Silverstein gets to rebuild on, uh, the, again, a specific point in the lease that he signed. He got the ability to rebuild on, uh, just in case the towers get destroyed. So that's exactly what he did. And now it is his crown jewel. It is his most valuable asset. So Again, don't cry any tears for Lucky Larry, but he didn't get as much as he could have. And it does raise the question of why, if if Silverstein was central and integral and an insider insider in this plot, why he was scrambling, why he only signed the lease six weeks before 9-11, why he was still scrambling to get insurance coverage in place even as the attacks were unfolding, that's that's pretty sloppy, isn't it? And it would suggest that there may be something more to this picture. I will direct people in the direction of a very interesting article that I can only find on the Wayback Machine now. I can't find the original, but um, it is called The Bonds of August, Refinancing the Twin Towers in August 2001. And it's on a blog again. I, uh, it's an old blog. I will direct you to the link so you can go check it out yourself. But uh, this person, this writer, is writing in the context of the sort of establishment mainstream, but on the fringes of the mainstream, reporting by people like James Bamford and others who were reporting about how uh, Mohammed Atta, of course, the ringleader of the hijackers, as we're told, was uh, being pressured by Al-Qaeda Central to, Al-Qaeda Central, to do the attacks in summer of 2001. Speed it up, come on, let's get it going. And no, Atta held off, and ultimately they didn't end up buying the tickets till late August, August 25th to 29th, blah, blah, blah. That's parts of the official story. But um, this picks up from that and then starts to ask some interesting questions regarding the insurance and things like this. Um, he starts to note, for example, that there are details about the Twin Towers securitization, which actually covered 
not just the Twin Towers, not just WTC 1 and 2, but 4 and 5 as well, um, that, that raised some interesting questions. He says, one, the securitization was rushed and shabbily done. In particular, the insurance coverage for the buildings recovered, uh, required by the securitization was inconsistent with the coverage required by their leasing in the spring. And a good deal of the insurance coverage stipulated was never actually contracted before 9-11 arrived. And then he goes on to say the second point to note is that the securitization had an extraordinarily large reserve fund built into it. That is an unusually large amount of the proceeds of the bond sale were held in reserve by the bond trustee rather than delivered to the issuer of the bonds. The latter, which in essence at bottom was Silverstein Properties, the new long-term leaseholder. This reserve came in handy when the physical and business basis of the bonds went up in smoke on 9-11, the most dramatic instance of collateral decay in finance history, one imagines. Nevertheless, the reserve allowed the bonds to continue paying interest until insurance money started to dribble in. And he summarizes by saying, The gist is, when those bonds were sold on August 21st, it completed the two-step deal that took the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which owned the Trade Center, and until spring 2001 had always managed it, off the hook for the next five years of rent on the Twin Towers. That is, the PA got over $500 million cash in key money when the 99-year lease was signed by Silverstein Properties in the spring. Silverstein then got its own back by selling over $560 million in Twin Tower bonds in August. Finally, note that the lease transferred responsibility for rebuilding in case of mishap from the Port Authority to Silverstein. So, in short sum, the two-step deal had the effect of cushioning the Port Authority from the blast of 9-11. And he says, Conspiracy theorists already convinced that demolition was at work on 9-11 might surmise that somebody wanted the Twin Towers and WTC-7 to come down that day, but nobody wanted to destroy the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey in the process. And he makes the point that, again, this shields the Port Authority. Silverstein gets covered by the securitization, by the bonds, that magically enough, the reserve fund was enough to continue paying out the interest payments until the insurance money started coming in. And uh, and so basically the, the, the economic impact gets transferred off to the bondholders and to the insurers. And in the end, it does raise some interesting questions about the timing of the attacks. And he goes on at the end of this article to say that a theorist may wonder if the securitization was rushed and shabbily done because someone near the center of the deal knew that that window in early September, when the Air Force would be elsewhere, i.e. what I talked about in 9-11 war games, was fast approaching. And if that same someone with an eye on that same window made sure that the deal's reserve was bulky enough to pay the interest on the bonds for a year or so, and if in order to hit that same window all across the summer, but the attacks were delayed by Atta's controllers, whoever they are, within the Western so-called intelligence apparatus, well, even if all those ifs are in fact counterfactual, it is fascinating to learn that Atta organized his calendar such that it fell into sync with those of the Air Force and the leasing financing project, even as Al-Qaeda uh, Central pressed for attacks in the summer. So, again, it does raise some interesting questions. Again, there's there's more than one reason why the attacks were taking place in that time frame, and a lot of things were converging in that early September window, and someone who knew about that and was trying to get things in place at that time would be scrambling in that way. It does, to my mind, it really... Uh, throws significant question marks around the idea that Silverstein was central or in on the inner plot of 9-11. Uh, obviously, I think 
he was involved in some way, certainly in the aftermath of it. Um, and I would assume signing the lease just weeks before 9-11 and getting all of this uh, securitization and everything in place just in time for the attacks was part of the plan in a broader sense. But how much of that plan was he operationally a part of? Would you be the person who would put yourself in that position where you could get billions and billions more if you just had all of the uh, dots uh, made and the T's crossed and everything on 9-11, if that had been in place, if he had actually had the negotiated finalized insurance, it seems to me that, yeah, he was scrambling but did not get there in time, um, which again shows me that I don't think he was ultimately in control operationally of the plot um, to whatever extent he was involved in the planning of it at all. But it is, I mean, it's interesting. It throws up so many more questions. So ultimately, <laughs> Leonard, I think your question is one of those very good questions that ultimately leads to more questions. Uh, every time you solve a, a, one of the parts of that question, you get several more. But I will, again, I'll throw people that link. I, I will ask you to look into it because I think it starts to open up this broader conversation, the oft-neglected conversation that I keep going back to about follow the money, about the monetary aspects of 9-11 that I think are uh, sadly under-discussed, under misunderstood, and uh, not really represented in the 9-11 truth movement. So, um, having said all of that, I will throw one final cookie crumb on this trail for you to follow. I think it's interesting that I came across as I was putting together this research for this. There's an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting article that I think people will see some of the parallels here. Uh, it's Politico, for example, and others have been uh, covering this, but Politico has the headline, Insurers Scramble to Avoid 9-11-Style Coronavirus backlash. Oh yeah, you better believe all of these insurance shenanigans are going to be surrounding the new 9-11, the corona scare. So there's going to be insurance uh, repercussions for that. Who are going to be the players? How are they going to be affected? What will come as a result of this? Will there be years and years of negotiations and lawsuits and settlements and never mentioning some of the medical basis for questioning what's going on? Probably. Does this mean that 19 years from now in 2039, I'm going to have some sort of questions for Corbett from Leonard or Maybe Leonard Jr. asking about the insurance ramifications on the coronavirus COVID-19 false flag of those 19 years ago. It's a possibility at any rate. So get ahead of that game and start researching it now. Um, as always, use the comment section at corporatereport.com as a place to compile research and analyze some of these stories whether it's regarding specifically 9-11 and the WTC or whether it's about the coronavirus insurance or what have you. I think there's a lot of very interesting things to go down uh, with regards to this. But we're going to leave that here for today. Uh, once again, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.